Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Well, welcome to the Common Bridge. It's where we talk about the issues of the day, the opportunities of the moment, and absolutely some policy solutions. So I'd like to welcome Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're all aware of the Great Recession and the financial crisis of 2008. I don't think anybody was unaffected by it. And well, this might be academic for some people or something they saw on the news. It's, it's a matter for faraway bankers or speculators. But it's really about people's homes. It's about their jobs, their credit rating, their lives. And, and today, the audience for the Common Bridge is going to hear about people that were there, that at a front row seat. You weren't studying this from a distance. You lived it. You were witnesses to events. Carrie, you were a voice that foresaw the crash. And you tried to warn those that could have prevented it. And you were blocked by doing it. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that today. And why we need to care about this today, because the, the seeds of wealth inequality really began to be planted and nourished from this horrible event. And frankly, if we don't act now, I understand we could have a bigger crisis mm -hmm. coming up. And today we're going to be talking about the new book, a one that I'm very enthusiastic about. This is really well-researched and extremely well-written. It's called Nothing is Too Big to Fail. And so with us today on the Common Bridge, the authors, Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger. So I anticipate some education and you'll hear some policy ideas. And I'm going to start this off by saying everybody should get the book because while we'll touch on some of the topics, I know for sure that we can't do it full justice here in the time that we've got. Our audience likes to know a little bit about the people that are coming on to the show. And so the early days, where'd you grow up? What was your academic preparation? Or maybe a little bit about professional work that you've done? And I don't know who wants to go first. Uh, Ladies first. first, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Carrie and I are both born and raised in Iowa. Uh, we were born in the same hospital, same year, same doctor, but it took us uh, five decades to meet each other. <laughs> <laughs> it can be slow that way, probably. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we both went to school in Iowa. We both had three or four jobs supporting ourselves, going through school and public universities. I went to Iowa State and Carrie went to Iowa City. Yeah. And um, we had similar kinds of careers. Um, I started my career as I was appointed by Governor Ray to uh, be Director of Administration for the Department of Social Services in Iowa, which included the prison system, the mental health institutions, and all the social service agencies. And then after that, I became a partner in an international accounting firm where the regulators would call me in to do strategic plans, five-year strategic plans for banks that were failing. So I'm very familiar with what happened in the uh, crisis of the 80s. I've also been a banker myself. I was vice chair of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines. And I understand that you've ex traveled extensively, and also you <laughs> maybe hold the record for traveling inside the state of Iowa? Yeah. <laughs> I have been to all 900 cities. <laughs> Which was your favorite? I'm just kidding. Bob, I wouldn't open that a bit. And what are you doing today? What, what kind of job or activities are you working on today? Um, Carrie and I both have venture capital firms. So we do a lot of investing in fintech companies. And we have a very active uh, foundation. So we do a lot of charitable work and working and putting on events and things like that, trying to, uh, trying to, make our communities better places to live. Beautiful. And Carrie, what a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, I was uh, out of, as Linda said, out of the state of Iowa. And uh, uh, after getting my MBA uh, degree, I went on and I was in the finance investment areas, my expertise. So I started off over in Nebraska, met Warren Buffett back in about 1969 or 70 and, and, and had very similar investment uh, strategies of Buy low, sell high, <laughs> and trying to find undervalued situations and and uh, you know companies that could grow over time and hopefully the stocks would do well. So I ran a family of mutual funds for a while and we grew a uh, broker dealer and mutual fund company uh, significantly on the West Coast and then got the idea that the future was about combining uh, securities firms like that with uh, regulated banks 
And so we structured a transaction in the early 80s to merge our companies into a struggling thrift at the time, which was Washington Mutual. It was uh, nearly on the ropes at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made them put up twice our purchase price in an escrow account in case they didn't make it. Uh, and then the board asked me to put our companies together and come in and see if we could turn them around. And so we took a little company of what, two or three billion of assets and losing about $30 million a year to a company we only got up over $300 billion and we're earning about $4 billion a year. A fantastic uh, track record and, and great, great success there. In your book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail, you have some great photos and some history with presidents of both parties. You've personally talked with many cabinet secretaries, regulators, Federal Reserve members, and many familiar names in the news as well. What a journey. And I think you've testified to regulators and governments as well. Yeah, we've been, uh, of course, right, very involved in all these things for, for many decades. So uh, uh, from different perspective, uh, Linda was involved in politics in the uh, state of Iowa, where she had lived uh, for, for a number of decades while I was on the West Coast. And uh, from my standpoint, uh, it was primarily around business matters. So I knew all the Federal Reserve Board members and the chairman and uh, served as either chair or vice chair of several of their committees and, and councils to meet with the Fed. So I knew them. And, and of course, we uh, have to deal with various presidents of all parties. Mm-hmm. So uh, we all know them all pretty well and uh, have done that. So it's just a matter of uh, when you're a regulated bank, uh, the way we were, you need to be very knowledgeable about uh, about uh, uh, the politicians. Well, that's a key part of the book that I'd encourage everyone to read, how all these interrelate, particularly with the challenge that we have today. Um, and today we're going to talk about asset bubbles and liquidity and the role of those policies and how they affect, frankly, our national prosperity, our household income, our income quality. We hear people listen to reports that the Federal Reserve is acting to provide more or sometimes less liquidity into the economy, or a bank has a liquidity problem or not. Is there a universal definition of liquidity? Bearing in mind, most of our audience are not financial or banking experts. Sure. Well, liquidity uh, in its simplest form is just having lots of money flowing through the system. And believe it or not, the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air. They can print it any day, however much they want. And when they print a whole bunch of money, throw it out into the system and have more money out there than what the natural growth of the economy is, then that can create excess liquidity or conditions where there's too much money chasing a limited number of assets. And that's what tends to drive asset prices up. Uh, Conversely, the Fed can determine that it's going to be tight on money and it starts pulling it in, it, it raises interest rates, it, it cuts off new money into the system, and that can cause it the other way, which is the mistake they made in 2008. Look at the housing market was going through a normal cyclical correction because it was in a bubble status and needed to be corrected. But the Fed, instead of recognizing that that was a risk, they went down and took money, tightened up the liquidity, took it all out of the system. Before they knew it, we were in a total freefall freezing of the capital markets, we call it. And and when money is not there, the asset prices of everything plummet. And that's why housing prices plummet. That's why the stock market plummeted. That's why uh, the economy went into a tailspin. That's why people lost, millions of people lost their homes and lost their jobs. So the Fed controls all that. Now, that was a terrible mistake they made in 2008. But right now, they may be making exactly the other's mistake, which is flood the system with too much money for too long a period, drive up all these asset prices to unrealistic levels, and guess what? When you do that, you create an enormous risk of those bubbles popping. And when that happens, it's very uh, unpredictable and dire consequences. So too much liquidity has to go someplace, goes into housing prices, stock prices, other asset classes like artwork and the like, it increases those prices beyond what they're actually worth. Mm -hmm. And then when the Fed says we're going to tighten up, those bubbles pop 
And I think Warren Buffett's quote is, when the tide goes out, that's when you see who's swimming naked. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so these are, these are scary, scary times. Now, we didn't just arrive here during this period. And you mentioned that it was a, Washington Mutual was a struggling thrift when you first got involved. What was the traditional role of the savings and loans, the, the thrift institutions, and when they were founded, and, and particularly how good of a job did they do for helping people attain home ownership and spreading the wealth of the country a little bit? Yeah. Actually, thrifts are really started in the early 1800s, I think when President Jackson was president. And um, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very quiet institutions. They thousands were just built practically overnight, and a lot of them were just people uh, who, like, were in similar unions or worked in the same town. I think the first one was a, a first SNL was a group of textile workers. Mm. They got together on the East Coast and traded an SNL, and so that they could help each other buy a house. And so you'd put in your deposits and someone need to borrow that money to buy a house, they could. And it was a very quiet industry uh, and totally unregulated by the federal regulators. They're just very quiet and safe. They had two functions, take in deposits and lend out. Well, it's a 363 model. Right. You take in deposits and pay 3%. You load it out at 6% and you're on the golf course by 3 p.m. And that lasted real well until the um, uh, crash of 1929, when we lost about half the savings and loans and half the commercial banks in, in that era. But then afterwards, they had enough good regulations that they set aside that really helped uh, stabilize the banking and thrift industry uh, until the 1980s. And in the 1980s, um, they started having rising interest rates, and you can't do that with 363 banking. So what happens is these savings and loans ended up with huge amounts of 30-year fixed rate uh, uh, loans, mortgage loans, on their books in a rising interest rate environment. Oh. So they were essentially broke on paper. So they couldn't borrow money or, or pay out deposits at a price yeah. that, that would give them money to lend out at a profit. Yeah, so they they were really struggling, and they figured in, in the uh, 1980s, uh, the majority, like maybe 95% of the SNLs were, were just completely bankrupt. They, they just didn't have anything, so the government was trying to prop them up. That caused another crisis, but fundamentally, uh, that's been the backbone of where people, all these for two two centuries, where people have gotten their, their mortgages. And now we've introduced another class of player that you write about in the book, the Wall Street banks. And who are they and what's their function? And populated by some not-so-nice people. Well, the Wall Street <laughs> banks uh, traditionally were really about a handful of the most powerful uh, banks. Uh, some of them were investment banks. Uh, that would be like a Goldman Sachs, a Morgan Stanley, a Lehman Brothers uh, when they were still here. And some others that were regulated, but they had large New York roots, and that would be like J.P. Morgan Chase or uh, uh, Citigroup and, and a couple of others. So it's really dominated by the, about five or six banks who, uh, who we kind of call the club. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, we coined a phrase uh, when we were talking one of the congressional uh, testimony that the problem we had is uh, we were not one of the two clubby to fail banks. And uh, if you watch, there is a revolving door out of the Goldman Sachs and others of the world, in and out of uh, government regulations and into uh, politics and, and with enormous uh, clout and control. So it's really kind of an inside group that we're uh, kind of uh, kind of handling things. Well, that was a, the, the, that club. If I understood the book, it's it's not only the banks; it's the regulators, it's the Treasury Department, mm -hmm. it's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, it's the senators and, and other lawmakers that all have their hand in there. That's kind of the club. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the average person heard a lot about the abuses of Wall Street banks were the villains, and the weapon of choice was a subprime loan. And just as a level set, what's a good definition for a subprime loan? 
Well, there a lot of people have different definitions, but the Federal Reserve's definition is that any any loan with a with a uh, FICO score below six sixty. Okay, Although, so that's the so that's your credit rating, like your FICO yeah, score, right? Okay, right. And but there's there's some other variables too, uh, but but basically it's a, a credit score below six sixty. Yeah, I, I think the as Linda said, it's primarily determined by who the borrower is. If the borrower is a low FICO score borrower, then it's subprime. And uh, there's a lot of other nuances that happen to hit around that, but that's the overwhelming issue. And and I think the uh, important thing is that we saw, in, as you mentioned, in 2008, the financial crisis, subprime loans were a real problem. And what people don't understand is that the overwhelming majority, in fact, 85% by Linda's research, of all of the subprime loans that were done during that period were done by non-regulated, uh, we call them shadow banking companies. Uh, nearly all of them went belly up. Uh, but what happened is they were originating the subprime loans, then selling them to Wall Street. Then Wall Street would take them, slice them and dice them and put them into different securitizations. And they all thought that was gonna reduce risk because of diversifications of having you know, millions of subprime loans that somehow they would all perform well uh, by being diversified. Well, of course, all of them perform pretty lousy. So, well, so the performance of those things just blew up on them. Yeah, this is one of the um, uh, the things that people haven't gotten the full facts on because this is some of the original research that we did in that uh, the 85% of all the subprime loans were by these unregulated companies like AmeriQuest, New Century, First Franklin, and that just evaporated overnight. And between the years 2002 and 2007, uh, these unregulated shadow banks uh, put created $2 trillion of the worst subprime loans you can imagine that performed two or three times, two or three times worse than those of regulated banks. Regulated banks, the, the major regulated five major regulated banks that did subprime loans, only only created fifteen percent of the loans. They were much better quality, and they were only maybe five five percent of their their loan production. So let me make sure I understand this: that you have these unregulated shadow banks, mm -hmm. and um, I understand they develop broker relationships, and a broker yes. would be out there writing bad mortgages, someone that didn't have the income or the assets. They inflated the value of the properties. Those are known as liar loans, right? But they got paid a commission for writing that mortgage. Yes. And then that got sold to another entity that packaged them in these debt instruments, collateralized debt obligations, and then went into that powerhouse of Wall Street to be sold. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the flow right there? I must that, be thinking that something That is exactly out. right, uh, with one addition, is that at the end of that flow, those those uh, securities would end up in hedge funds and others that were using leverage. So they might buy them with 10% down oh and 90% and <laughs> on debt. So when you get to the end of the train, you know, if the underlying loans don't perform real well and you're out there leveraged on a magnified basis, it's pretty easy to get wiped out. And that's what happened uh, with one of the real triggers of the financial crisis is some of these hedge funds and other vehicles that were leveraged, those loans started performing poorly on them and they literally had to cease, stop, go out. The capital markets got freaked by all that and that helped lead to some of the freezing. Some of those institutions said, well, we've got risk, but we've insured against it. We have something called a credit default swap. Yeah. Yes, that's um, exactly what I was going to okay, say. Okay, so how did those not work? Well, what the, about in the late 1990s, um, that there was a lot of pressure for banks to have more capital. There was a, a, a national group that wanted banks to have higher capital worldwide. And so there's a lot of pressure to get uh, certain you had to have a certain kind of capital for a certain, you know, riskier the product was, the more capital you'd have to have in your mm -hmm. bank. So Wall Street couldn't wait to game the system. And so in the late 90s, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase invented the credit default swap. And what you do is you set up what's called an SIV, which is an off-balance sheet company. You dump all your CDOs in there. 
So they're not on your balance sheet. Collateralized debt obligations. Right. Okay, and what is SIV? It's a structured investment vehicle. Okay, great. It's just like off-balance sheet company. And so you stuff all your CDOs into this little company. And then you want to insure the loans in case the CDOs blow up. So what you do is you go over to an insurance company like AIG and you insure it. Well, so AIG was more than happy to insure all these things because they never thought mortgage, you know, mortgages are safe. They never thought mm. it was going to blow up. So they keep writing and writing. They're based on commission only. And they put together $62 trillion of, of credit default swaps. Oh, my goodness. So when things start going down, the CDOs start going bad, AIG didn't have any money to pay them. And that caused huge panic in the market in September. And the government responded by giving AIG $85 billion to help pay off. Is this where the counterparty risk, uh, that, that, when the, that when they sold the credit defaults swap, that the, we didn't know who was on the other side of the transaction to make that good? Is there a late explanation for how that factored in? Yeah. So the major users of the credit default swaps were big Wall Street banks. They were far and away the biggest initially. And they were trying to lay off their risk and that's they put it with AIG. They issued all of them. They were the major issuer. Uh, the also, if, as the financial crisis went on further and further, more people said, oh, these credit default swaps, there's kind of a market price on them. We can buy and sell them and do them. And then they started doing a whole bunch of these things, just trying to make, trying to benefit if the systems blew up somehow. So kind of the uh, short sellers and the people negative on it started using them as a tool to, to try to profit on it all. What I think is most interesting is when it came time for the problems to, uh, you know, to, to all hit, that the government came in and bailed out AIG to keep it there. Well, you know who mm -hmm. the major beneficiaries were? It was their counterparties, the Wall Street Made yeah, firms. So they turned right. around. So they got hundreds and hundreds of millions right. of dollars or billions <laughs> of dollars of money that they otherwise would have lost. So a fair bit of the bailout of the whole thing went right to the benefit of Wall they Immediately, they got their $85 billion and immediately and, writing I mean, checks, and in, too. And in the meantime, 26 million Americans are out of work. <laughs> yep, exactly. Millions of Americans put out of their exactly. homes. Housing prices crushed. And those that, you know, literally caused the problem continued to prosper and profit from it. And we're getting a dislocation between Wall Street Absolutely. and Main Street again. Now, Washington Mutual was in a different position because my understanding is that under your leadership, you foresaw this maybe four or five years in advance and started reducing the exposure of Washington Mutual to mortgages. Can you explain how that worked? Well, yes. Uh Look, at, we try to watch all asset categories about are they getting overvalued or not. Mm -hmm. And I became convinced in the early 2000s that housing was growing too fast. That whenever housing grows much faster in price than the underlying rate of inflation, you know, with some kind of an understanding about limitations on land and all that kind of thing. But real estate, when it grows much faster than the inflation, is a risk. And housing was, was going out of control. And I was on a, on a council that met with the Fed regularly, and I advised him. I said, look, you got a problem on your hands. Rain it down. Stop this bubble. Start raining it in before it explodes or it gets too big. And, uh, and they said, no, our economists tell us that everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Housing will not be a problem in the slightest. Get off of our backs. I said, okay, but I've got to do what i got to do for our company. And we reduced our residential lending by 74%. Wow. We got out of all the higher risk lending like subprime and all that kind of stuff uh, well before the, uh, the the crisis kind of hit in full thing. And so we thought we got very well positioned for a major housing downturn. The only thing we missed is that uh, that the Fed would make such terrible mistakes and allow the thing to go from a cyclical downturn into a major panic, panic and runaway train. And that's... Uh, that's what ultimately happened there. And you also had uh, another problem in that, you know, I don't know if there's another word to describe it other than covet, but J.P. Morgan Chase was coveting Washington Mutual. You're very sound financially. You had a great franchise, 2,500 branch offices, yeah. I believe, a terrific corporate culture. And that was something that they wanted to buy, but maybe not pay full value for. And 
if I understand the way the mechanisms work, they manipulated some of the programs in 2008 to weaken Washington Mutual and, and buy the company severely undervalued. Yeah, I think, look, there were three main forces that came together at the same time. One, uh, look, at uh, Washington Mutual was the best uh, retail consumer bank in the country for average everyday uh, consumers. We were adding over a million net new customers a year. Wow. Imagine that for a bank. And Chase needed that system very, very badly. And so they naturally were acquirers on that. I knew that, and I had interactions with them for many, many years and knew that. At the same time, the Treasury, who was led by Hank Paulson at the time, came out with a study and said they wanted to eliminate the thrift industry and wanted it all to be merged into the banking, into Wall into Street. Wall Street. And so he was pushing right into, right, right into the club. Right into the club. <laughs> and then on the other side, the regulators, when the when the crisis hit, they just all panicked. They had no game plan. They didn't know which banks to save, which ones to throw over. Should they take Lehman uh, and, and put them into bankruptcy or not? And anyway, they had a totally disjointed program. But the one there was the FDIC That's was the worried. Deposit Insurance yeah, Corporation. They were worried about running out of money because there wasn't enough money to pay for a whole bunch of banks going uh, going toast. And so we had this combination of J.P. Morgan Chase with a rapacious appetite, with Treasury wanting to get rid of community banks in favor of Wall Street, and we had the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation saying, gosh, if I could just get something done at no cost to our fund, we're going to try to do that. And so they violated every normal regulatory protocol uh, and and they they um they didn't really want to buy the bank it was really better for them if the bank was seized so the bank later on the bankruptcy examiner came in and interviewed all of everybody involved and the one thing that the banking examiner a bankruptcy examiner said is that you know the jp morgan chase never did make a bid an $8 bid for the bank. It was just a non-binding indication of interest. What they really wanted to do, and they had a number of presentation decks that they presented to the FDIC in the summer of 2008 and September of 2008. And these presentation decks basically says, we don't want to buy the bank. We want to have it seized, and then we'll take it over. Because in a seizure scenario, they don't have to have shareholder approval. They can sometimes pick and choose the assets. They don't have to mark the market, mark the assets to market value. And, and they also could claim a number of assets in the holding company. So why buy the bank when you can get all the perks out of a seizure? And so they kept giving misinformation to the FDIC and Treasury to try to get talk them into a seizure. And when you got a bunch of government officials in a panic mode, they're going to listen to that. So well, it's all, they're, it's, it's they're all, all, all part of the club. And, and I, I think, Linda, you were the chief author of two of the really powerful chapters in the book. Oh, thank you. About the, the aftermath, the lawsuits and legal that followed, <laughs> and that trying to paint Washington Mutual as a troubled company which was originated on Wall Street, wasn't true, but Senator Carl Levin of Michigan in the permanent Senate Investigation Committee mm -hmm. was trying to make hay out of that. And uh, the testimony, I remember watching the, the testimony, and Carrie, they never laid a glove on you. Okay, you, you had, you had, you had, you, you had facts. And the issue with Washington Mutual was not that it was a failed bank, but there was a liquidity crisis. And, and they, they yeah, start they, liquidity. They, yeah, they forced a liquidity crisis. One thing that's important to know about uh, Washington Mutual is it was in great condition during the summer of 08 and into September. It had the highest capital ratio of any of the large banks. The uh, tier one uh, capital was 10%, and the risk-based, risk-adjusted capital was uh, nearly 14%. It was the highest of all the so, banks. So it's, it's better than J.P. Morgan Chase, yes. better than yes. Bank of America, better than Goldman Sachs, yes. all yes. of whom than... are trading favors right. inside the club, yeah. using the power of our government 
to abuse a private company which actually foresaw the crisis right. and tried to prevent it. Not only that, but uh, Washington Mitchell had the best loan loss ratio. They had the safest loans. Mm -hmm. uh, up until 2007, the loan loss at Washington Mitchell was one half of 1%. So they had the best loans in the industry. That's, that sounds very low. What, so were the, only, what were some of the worst ones? I don't know if you know that off the top of your head. What, what would what would a bad mark there be? Oh, uh, Citigroup. So no question at all. <laughs> Citigroup. <laughs> Much longer. In fact, the um, an independent organization. Um, uh, research group actually did a statistical analysis like in 2013 of a, of a statistical sample of three and a half million loans uh, through 1100 securitizations and they looked at it and it was it was um, uh, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Washington Mutual, Countrywide and what was it the Bank, one? Of Bank of America. And what they found is that Bank of America, Washington Mutual, were the top two in in the FICO scores and the LTV. So they were the best performing the loan, loan, loans, value. loan, loan value. So they were the best performing loans. And then also Washington Mutual had access to over fifty billion in liquidity, liquidity, which which the investment banks really didn't have access to until they were made holding companies. And however, we found out years later that um, Treasury and Federal Reserve have literally cut off the, the liquidity, told the federal home loan banks you can't loan them any more money. So they were trying to, to create a liquidity crisis. So as we go through the book, which is, I, I really encourage everyone to read this book. It is easily digestible, even if you're not an expert. And if you are an expert, you're really going to like the stories of the inside game and the way things are connected. So I can recommend the book highly. Thank you. So now we jump to 2020. Yeah. And pre-pandemic, you were concerned about six asset bubbles, the stock prices, housing prices, commercial real estate prices, luxury goods, household net worth, and Chinese real estate. Yeah. Are we in asset bubble territory today on these? Yeah. Rich, this is the biggest asset bubble I've seen in my lifetime, in oh my. my opinion. I mean, I've seen a lot of cycles, but this is the one where I've seen more classes of assets that appear to be selling at prices substantially above their intrinsic value. And, and to establish a bubble, you got to come to the conclusion that an asset price is too high. And that's usually reflected of, you know, we all go through and we try to figure out what's an intrinsic value for something. What's a reasonable value to pay for earnings or reasonable value to, to pay for a piece of furniture, whatever it might be. And then how is that price changing? Uh, and when it gets way above what you think is reasonable and speculators are rampant, those are the warning signs that go off. So let's look what happened the last five years. Just to trendset everybody, uh, the rate of inflation only grew about 9% totally for a period of five years. Uh, so that's what was going on there. The Fed, though, they pumped so much money into the system and bought so many assets that they put this huge amount of excess liquidity out there. So, for example, uh, the money supply grew by 55%. They grew their balance sheets by 64%, even though inflation was only 10%. Well, guess what? It, it caused stock prices to go through the ceiling. The NASDAQ 100 over that period of time went up 180%. That's not because companies are earning more money. They're sure they're having normal profit growth, but the stocks are up 180%. Let me, see if, let me see if I can understand that too. So if there's 55% more money in the economy, and if debt instruments, savings accounts are getting very low interest yeah. rates, so they're actually going backwards, that nobody's gonna put money into an interest-bearing account or a mm -hmm. savings account, but the money's gotta go someplace, so it goes into stocks. Stock prices go up artificially, goes into real estate. Real estate prices go up artificially. Exactly. And I think that the key here, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is, I think, a really important pivot point, People that owned assets, their value of the assets just increased, but people that were maybe younger or trying to get on the, the first rung, 
trying to live on wages, that those assets are just getting out of reach because yeah. because yeah. wages aren't keeping up. And now we have this widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. And the income gap right now is the highest that it's been since right before the 1929 stock crash. There's more inequality now in this country than there has been since 1928. Yeah, I looked at another way. The, the bottom 50% of households only own about 1.9% of all the assets. Now think about that. 50% of our population has gotten squeezed out, isn't able to buy a house, isn't able to uh, own stocks. And the benefits of all these uh, uh, hyperinflation that's going on in, in, in prices aren't benefiting them. In fact, they're getting squeezed because their cost of living is starting to rise again and sure. their incomes haven't been that good. So one of the real problems we have, is, I believe, as a society is that, uh, is that we are losing our broad middle class. That really stood out to make us so uh, successful for decades. And uh, our tax policies and these actions by the Federal Reserve to cause these asset bubbles are really benefiting fewer and fewer people. If the role of government is to tax the income, productivity, and, and maybe wealth transfer, okay, in order, you know, got to raise money for defense, social programs, healthcare services, which in my humble opinion, I think a certain level of healthcare services have become a public good, but infrastructure, climate protection, and the like, are we setting ourselves up for another disaster? Because we're not funding those things adequately enough. Well, yeah, we're, we're very concerned, not only about the asset bubbles, as we call them, but also debt bubbles. And because the Fed has kept rates, interest rates so low, it's caused everybody to want to go out and borrow because they can all got tons of money. So, so consumer debt is rising. Uh, corporations are borrowing at record levels. But worst of all, the federal government is going crazy on borrowing. Uh, we are just honing in on a $28 trillion unpaid debt out there now. And we're sustaining annual budget deficits of about $2 trillion a year right now. Uh, and we understand what we have to do short run to get us through COVID and get the economy stabilized, so we're supporting. But if we do that much longer and we just stay in this huge deficit position, uh, we're, we think we're setting our economy up to be very fragile and the slightest misstep, uh, even rising interest rates, will have a huge impact on the budget deficit each year. Think about it, $28 trillion mm. of debt outstanding, 1% change in interest rates would be, what, $280 billion increase in the budget deficit. Uh, and that, that could happen at any time here. So we're on an unsustainable track, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of the solutions, but isn't it a little strange today that we're in this situation where Amazon, arguably one of the most successful companies in the world, that they want states and municipalities to pay for the infrastructure that Amazon is going to consume when Amazon establishes a business center. I was like, see, my public education was paid for by two Ford planes yeah. because they built cars and trucks there and <laughs> they paid property taxes and did work by a great public school system. Uh, not that I'm an example of that at all. <laughs> so <laughs> Jeff Bezos, the CEO and founder of Amazon, is his net worth the problem or is it the systems that create the inequality and how did we get here? Look, and I think America, to be successful, has to be a capitalistic society. So we want people to have the opportunity to earn whatever they possibly can. Um, and so I don't have a concern about going after any you know, targeted people or anything like that. However, I do think that our system is, is, is not balanced right now. Uh, as we, we alluded to earlier, uh, the average Joe is not participating in these asset bubbles or these asset price increases that are going on. Uh, that's being increasingly concentrated. So I think we've got to look very hard over time about uh, about tax policies, about just how much benefit do we want to give to uh, capital gains uh, as a preference to ordinary income. Uh, as one benefits someone that owns assets. Yeah. One benefits someone that is maybe trying to get that first home. In your book, you do lay out a number of policy ideas. They are very, I think, well-researched. Where ought do we go from here? Bearing in mind that we've talked a lot about 2008 and the damage to households, 
to human beings. We've now gone through COVID or maybe through COVID. Is it oversimplification to say that the response about liquefying households was a better idea than trying to selectively liquefy banks? Yeah, I, look, I think the reaction to COVID, uh, the government did a good job of targeting as much more of this go around to average people to get money to help them rather than concentrating all into a bunch of Wall Street or banks or AIG or, or an industry like that. I think it was done better this time. Uh, I think if I was doing the program, I would have had it even more targeted uh, to be sure it was really impacting people hurt the most and not uh, not uh, a windfall in some situations. Well, we, we've talked about now the Zoom class. People yeah. that uh, the people that are in the classification that can work on Zoom mm -hmm. versus someone that has to go and work in a warehouse that has been infected. So we, we talked about tax policy and, and about raising property taxes as a way, perhaps, of moving to the next level. Is that really going to be effective? Because wouldn't those property tax increases end up in someone's rent at some point? Well, they will. You know, if you're talking about the recommendations, for me, the one number one and number two, the most important. Our first, the Federal Reserve has got to start getting off this easy money policy, start reining in so we can deflate bubbles slowly rather than piercing them. If, if they pierce, that's going to hurt tens of millions of people in a major way in job loss and so forth. The second thing is the federal government has to get its act together to bring down the annual budget deficits. Uh, so that because we're going to wake, if we don't, we're going to wake up one day and the capital markets are going to say our financial health is deteriorated and we're going to see interest rates having jumped up considerably and be in kind of a financial crisis. Uh, this next is we go down to the state and local governments. Uh, they, they actually have behaved themselves better than the federal government because most states have a requirement for balanced budgets and that's been helpful. However, the states have not stepped up and funded their pension liabilities. And there's a, at least a $4 trillion, maybe higher, uh, deficit in uh, pension liabilities that have to be paid for at some point. And we're just encouraging, do it now before the, you know, try to get as much of that paid for before you get your uh And, your and the pension liability is a very sticky wicket because you're dealing with public employees, you're dealing with unions, and you're dealing with you know, collective bargaining agreements, and most of the world's gone to defined benefit, where the employer says, "Here's how much we're going to put toward your retirement." Excuse me, defined no, contribution. contribution. That, that's what I just yeah, yeah. <laughs> defined. How much we're going to put? Defined benefit is here's how much you get out, which is predicated on what your estimate of your investment returns, and so that's a. You know, a bit of analysis or kabuki and you know voodoo and say yeah we've got enough in there or not but i, I agree that we do need to move beyond that the, the the real risk since you brought that up on those pensions is that those plans all assume a annual investment return of seven to seven and a half percent look if we are in a two percent inflationary environment is, is and interest rates are only one or two percent or something like that how are you going to consistently earn seven to seven and a half percent in the pension plans? The only way they can do it is to get into increasingly risky assets. So that's going to be hedge funds. I mean, beyond stocks, it's going to be in the speculative stocks. It's going to be in the hedge funds. Spats. It's going to be in SPACs. <laughs> it's going to be in all these these uh, these instruments. Which yes, they might have some uh, higher returns in the short run, but extraordinarily risky. And if those come down the way we're fearful of when the when things correct, the investment returns out of these pension plans could be considerably less than seven to seven and a half percent. It could even be negative, you know, as sure. through a correction. And then that would be real big trouble for a lot of municipalities. What other policy solutions have you recommended in your book? Well, we have a, a, a number of things. Again, we think that from a tax standpoint, we ought to be addressing income inequality. Uh, you know, uh, we've got to keep addressing about uh, what's the appropriate uh, tax rates for uh, capital assets. What is it for, uh, for for wage assets? How much of a differential do you do you want to have there? Uh, uh, again, we don't make a lot of specific recommendations, but we just think Congress has to really deal with that in a way to bring the budget deficit uh, down uh, down considerably. Uh, we also think, again, there's some nuanced things about 
uh, uh, about uh, accounting policies that should be changed and things that we see about prohibiting short sellers from uh, helping create panics the way they did in the in the last one. Um, I think another recommendation too is is really take a look at the money flow between Congress and Wall Street, uh, and and what that does to uh, our financial system. You know, back when President Eisenhower was president, his major concern was the military industrial complex, and I think we got to start getting concerned about the congressional Wall Street complex and the, the, the billions of dollars that gets exchanged uh, during, that, during the process. That's an area of high concern where someone is elected to Congress, they leave Congress, and, and they are now become a lobbyist. <laughs> and one of the things on the Common Bridge, we've gone after a lot of the big issues, healthcare, infrastructure, climate change, student debt, and, and so forth. And what's been, rewarding to me is that we can get people around a table, we can agree on solutions to those things. And then when I, I'll just pick on healthcare for a second, when I look at why aren't we solving healthcare, it really is the private health insurance lobby that, that's the big boulder in the middle of the road. And they're, they're paying for elections, so that's preventing us from getting us to the kind of healthcare financing system that we should have. Mm-hmm. Which, as we all saw it during the pandemic, it's absolutely inappropriate. Now on that theme, I think one thing we need to watch very carefully is in the financial services, we have both regulated banks, but we also have what we call shadow banks. And these are uh, institutions doing the same kind of things, but are not regulated. And that shadow banking system is now much larger than the regulated system and growing at a much faster rate than the regulated. And so what's happened is they have done a very effective job of keeping regulators off their backs because they're not being regulated. And I think we have to continually monitor the risk being created by those non-regulated institutions and see what could happen in the next crisis if, you know, are they prepared for it? Right now, mortgage loans, well over half of them are being originated by by, um, shadow unregulated banks. So if you're a consumer, if someone listening to the Common Bridge today, and you say, look, I, I don't want to fuel these unregulated uh, shadow banks. How do they know who that unregulated shadow bank is? How do you, how do you know? Well, they're doing more and more business with them. Uh, so examples of uh, non-regulated or much less regulated would be uh, uh, hedge funds or when you uh, buy ETFs, exchange traded funds. I mean, they're are a great investment vehicle, but again, they don't have the same degree of regulation of what a what a regulated uh, uh, bank might be. Uh, or if you get a mortgage, you're, uh, if you go through a mortgage broker that's not regulated, that's that's a that's a different system with with uh, with certain risks that come around that. Increasingly, people are bypassing banks totally mm-hmm. and just borrowing directly from uh, like lending tree. L- lending tree. And they would be all unregulated. All the online. Mortgage originators are unregulated. So they can have lower standards because there's yeah. nobody monitoring the quality of their loan? Well, the only thing that, that it's working better now than it did in 2008 because now all those unregulated banks are selling their loans to Fannie and Freddie. And Fannie and Freddie are have, have pretty good guidelines now, so they're pretty much following the rules. However, if some when another president comes along that wants a lot more affordable housing, a lot more low income uh, uh, loans, uh, that they could force Fannie and Freddie once again to lower their standards. So we have to somebody should be monitoring that. So if we were going to look ahead and pick out a time period, whether it's 2025 or 2030, and you look back with satisfaction and say, you know what, we avoided the crisis. What happens in 2021, 2022 from a policy perspective that lets us escape these asset bubbles with gradually letting the air out versus piercing them versus what kind of disaster scenarios could we do? What should we be doing today to prevent that? I think the best thing would be if the Federal Reserve would uh, gradually raise interest rates instead of keeping them near zero. I think the Fed should also gradually reduce its uh, uh, balance sheet. In other words, it goes out and buys a bunch of mortgages and, and other assets 
And when, they, when they're a major buyer, that forces the price of those assets up so high that people flock to other assets and puts them into more stocks. So the Fed needs to unwind some of its balance sheet. So, so if it did the things of letting interest rates rise a little bit, take a little bit of the liquidity out of the system, uh, uh, reduce its balance sheet, then get the federal government to rein in the annual federal budget deficit to a trillion dollars or less per year, instead of keeping it up at uh, two trillion, like it's probably gonna be, uh, be this year, would be extraordinarily helpful. Then I think societally, I think it, we need to take a hard look about adjusting tax policies of how do we grow the middle class again? Yes. How do we give working wages? How do we still maintain the entrepreneurism that makes our con- country great, but not have it showing up as much in this huge bifurcation of who gets the goodies in this society? Well, I'm trying to think about the, the 2025, 2030, and to be able to go to a person and say, look, you're going to be able to get educated. Because the only exit from the best exit, I should say, from poverty or from lower income is education, marketable yeah. skills. All right, whether it is you know fixing air conditioners or uh, designing landscapes or whether it's sending someone to interplanetary research, it's all comes through education. And it seems to me we need to make sure the K twelve education is serious and it's it's giving students the the foundational skills for opening up secondary education. Uh, so that people can afford it. And and how do we get there without this loan sharking that goes on in, in student debt? It, mm-hmm. It's obscene what we're doing. Yeah. How do we get out of this? Your point is absolutely right. The, the single factor that will determine a person's future more than anything else is education. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that over a lifetime, if someone's able to achieve a four-year, adva- or four-year degree of college, uh, they'll earn anywhere from 35 to 50% on average more than someone who doesn't. So one of the keys to success is how do we make higher education available for everybody at the most cost-effective level we can? And I think the old model uh, of of the traditional university and the expenses that went with that may be a bit obsolete. I think we need to look very hard about all the, what technology can bring and, and what we can do in partnership with the community colleges and, and helping feed into them with a very cost-effective uh, alternative. And I, uh, tax policy-wise, we need to look about what types of education maybe the government provides. Again, I'm a free market kind of guy. I'd like to see entrepreneurism out there. But that is so important to our society. I could see some programs that uh, specifically you know, made some forms of higher ed uh, much, much more affordable for people, then they won't have to go out and borrow as much student debt. I think it's criminal that a, a young person starts life as a college graduate burdened with a debt that should be going toward a house and a refrigerator yeah. and perhaps starting a family and such. My idea for getting rid of student debt is to put an excise tax on these universities that have the multi-billion dollar endowments. <laughs> I mean, they got the, ultimately they got the money, right? And, and so like, give it back. Okay. There we'll, we'll be out of this instead of printing it more, but we need to break away from that. I think that you, you mentioned the rising in the middle class and said this on one of my other podcasts that I'm from Detroit, blue collar area. And if you had a job at General Motors and manufacturing blue collar line or at Ford Chrysler, you had a great life. You worked hard, yeah. okay? But you had a pension, you had paid vacation, you had health care, you could own your home, you could send your kids to college, you might have a cottage up north, you might have a boat in the driveway. And then you look at Amazon and are the Amazon warehouse workers, because Amazon's the GM of today, are those warehouse workers saying, I feel secure about my future because I'm working at Amazon. So I'm watching with this unionization that's going on in the Southeast right now. What didn't we talk about today that we should be discussing? Well, Rich, I think you did a great job yes, honing in on the key things that uh, we tried to communicate. Uh, I think, look, at our primary purpose in doing this book, first, there's no financial. We're going to give every last penny that comes in on this to our, our, to our foundation and do our charitable work. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It, it's really about trying to get more of the information out about what really happened in the 2008 financial crisis and all the mistakes we all made. Look, we made some mistakes too, but the policymakers made a ton of them, I believe. 
And I just want us to all learn from that so that we have a better chance to not repeat that. We're just trying to look through and see how can we make it so our kids and grandkids don't have to go through something like that again. And as we were you know, doing our work on the book, the more we watched these asset and debt bubbles growing, you know, it occurred to us that uh, not only is it as bad as it was right before that financial crisis of 2008, it's worse. There are multiple assets more overvalued today than what housing was relative mm-hmm. to its intrinsic value then. Now, I, I acknowledge that the Federal Reserve has learned something now, and I think the government's learned something, that when you get into the starts of a panic, throw tons of money at it and lots of stimulus, and that's why we did not have a full financial crisis this sp- or yes. last spring when COVID hit. Yeah. When COVID hit, we were within a week of a financial panic. It was falling that quickly. And I will give, the, again, the credit to the Fed and to the government that they stepped up as quickly as they could have. Well, I share your view of the emergency work that had to go in. I am more concerned about the Republicans and the Democrats actually addressing the problem today. And I'm much, much more concerned about the way that people get information about what the risks are. My experience is that people, with, when presented with the kind of scope and basis that your book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail, when they're presented with this, they'll do the reasonable thing, and they will want their elected representatives to do the reasonable thing. And this craziness that we're in with, and I hate these terms, Team Red, Team Blue, this news channel blasts Team Red, this news channel blasts Team Blue, and trying to get people into those corners without addressing these things that are very fundamental to our future. Linda, what what else should we be talking about today? Well, I'm really glad you brought the education up because that's really important. One of the things that that Carrie and I did in 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 putting this book together is we made a few trips to China, and we were walking through a, a poverty-stricken village. Uh, there's just the buildings are falling down. I'm not sure I've ever seen that kind of poverty in this country. And they, they, they allowed us to go into a preschool with a four and five year old kids. We got to sit down in the class and listen to them. And I w- went through their reading books. They're reading at a fifth grade level. So if we want to do what we need to do in this country, we got to realize that there's billions of people over in Asia that are preparing their kids much better for an education than what we're doing here. Right. Well, we're you know teaching our kids to be a little more woke, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know we're 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 disarming cartoon characters and uh, kicking amorous skunks off the airwaves. Uh, it's important work. Okay? <laughs> it's important work. Uh, someone's got to do that, I guess. But but no, I, I agree with you because around the world populations want a middle-class standard of living. Absolutely. Vietnam would be a great example of a rising middle class. So there are middle-class populations rising. We're not doing it very well in the United States. And part of it is that our generation needs to take responsibility for providing for the, the next generation. So important. So that they can be educated and it's not left to willy-nilly circumstance. You know, Rich, that reminds me the when our generation was born, we were saddled with about $30,000, $30,000, $40,000 of federal debt. If, if all that debt was just described to all of us younger people at the time. If we take it today, the average, or the, we have about $370,000 per person of everyone under age 18 in this country. Yeah, for all our grandchildren. So we're loading these kids up with this huge amount of federal debt, and we still haven't addressed health care, Social Security, all the infrastructure, all the things that we need to uh, need to do on that. And we also have loaded them up with a bunch of student debt uh, that when they do graduate, and so it's no wonder that between those pressures, are they really going to be able to afford homes? Are they going to get the same American dream that... Uh, uh, many of us were fortunate to uh, to get when we were uh, coming up. So I think as guardians and trying to pass on a better future for our folks, we've got to get our arms around those and try to make it better for them. I agree more than 100%. And, you know, I'm also concerned if, you know, let's say a contingent of folks came from you know, Vietnam, Germany, and we took them to some of the, you know, right here, Orange County or 
San Francisco, Los Angeles, and to see the way Americans are living. And sometimes it's not irrational if, if you can't get to that bottom level of home ownership. There's a point where you, where you might not try. Linda, any closing comments or anything else we should Oh, talk? you've done such a good job. We appreciate your uh, taking the time to do this with us. Well, there's more to cover that's in the book. Carry any last comments? No, I think you had pretty well hit it all, Rich. Good job. Well, thank you. Well, you both have been great guests. <laughs> the Common Bridges is where we talk about the issues of the day, the opportunities of the moment, and the solutions that we can apply from a policy standpoint. I hope everyone's encouraged to hear Linda Killinger and Carrie Killinger. Please read their book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail. It makes great gifts, but I think that this should be talking about at your 4th of July party. And uh, God willing, we'll all be gathering with our families then. There we go. All right. This is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.